liberty is the answer to the pain that so many people are feeling economically. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here is your host, your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire. Welcome back, my Liberty Lima Beans, to the Lions of Liberty podcast, your home for great conversations about the ideas of liberty. This is episode number 210, and that's important because that means you can find today's show notes featuring links to everything we discuss over at lionsofliberty.com slash 210. Today's show is sponsored by Health Excellence Select, an incredible free market affordable, legal alternative to your standard Obamacare corporatized insurance. To learn more, head over to lionsofliberty.com slash health. My guest today is a declared candidate for the vice presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party to be decided in just a few weeks at the Libertarian Party's National Convention in Orlando, Florida. She is the founder of Bellatrix PC, a woman-owned business-facing law firm, In 2012, she served as the general counsel to Governor Gary Johnson's libertarian campaign for the U.S. presidency and successfully defended challenges to his ballot access. She is, of course, Miss Alicia Dern. Alicia, before we get going, I've got to know, are you ready to roar? Absolutely. All right. Awesome. Now, Alicia, before we get into your, you know, your current run for the vice presidential nomination of the Libertarian Party, I want to get to know you a little bit better. So what I really first want to find out is, is how you first learned about the ideas of liberty. What first started exciting you about these things? And how did you become a libertarian? Well, I've pretty much always been a libertarian. When I was a kid and a a teenager, my father is a libertarian and he would tell me about libertarian ideas. And so I grew up thinking about them. And as I studied economics and history in high school and college, uh, it just cemented my libertarian ideals. So I've been a registered libertarian since the time I could vote. All right. And then what about your more current involvement with the Libertarian Party and libertarian politics? How did you end up working for Governor Gary Johnson a few years ago on his last campaign? You know, that's kind of a funny story. I, uh, was moving to St. Louis because I had decided to move out of California. I'm a business owner and California is not a very business friendly climate. So I decided to move to Missouri to headquarter my business. And I thought I need some activity where I can get to know other like-minded people. So I volunteered for Governor Johnson's campaign. In the course of doing that, they offered me the Missouri directorship for their uh, volunteer organization there. Uh, about a month or two after that, they promoted me to the Midwest director, and I did that for a good six to nine months, well into the general election. And then during that time, I started to pick up legal work for him and eventually was promoted to general counsel. So uh, it just was uh, getting to know people and uh, and working with him. I just had this great uh, sort of meteoric rise within his campaign, and it's given me such amazing opportunities within the Libertarian Party. Can you describe a little bit some of the uh, the challenges to Governor Johnson's ballot access? And I presume that the next libertarian candidate, whether it's him or somebody else, will face some similar challenges. So can you describe what, what came up there and how you're able to successfully defend it? Sure. So typically what happens and what happened in 2012 is that uh, major party candidates, usually through surrogates uh, within their state organizations, will file lawsuits challenging the placement of uh, third party and independent candidates on the ballot. So in order for 
parties like the Libertarian Party to get on the ballot, they have to submit uh, paperwork, typically petitions with signatures, if they do not already have uh, ballot access. And in 2012, we had uh, quite a few states where we had to submit signatures. Once those signatures are submitted, the Secretary of State decides whether or not the requirements have been met to include the name on the ballot. And then the public can bring lawsuits to challenge that determination. What we saw in 2012 and what we'll certainly see in 2016 are lawsuits from major parties. In 2012, it was mostly from the Republican Party challenging uh, placement of libertarians on the ballot. So what I did was I actually attended these uh, administrative hearings at the Secretary of State's offices in uh, multiple states, including Iowa and Virginia. And things were then brought up through the court system, and we were able to successfully defend the signatures and maintain our position on the ballot. All right. Well, that's certainly quite a tale. So we certainly need strong and not only strong libertarians, but people with strong legal backbones to kind of guide us through this process. And so many libertarians aren't necessarily thrilled about having to deal with the ins and outs of politics and uh, especially all the legal challenges to the two-party system because that system is is obviously in place for a reason. It's entrenched itself and it doesn't want challenges to it. But here we are, the libertarians knocking on the door along with other third parties as well who, while we might disagree with them, I I hope that they can also get you know ballot access and and debate access and all these things. So. I will tell you a story uh, for my first one because yeah. I, I think that really illustrates your point. So the first ballot access challenge that I defended was in Iowa. And what happened was it was the eve before the Republican Party National Convention. Governor Johnson was down in Florida. I was actually going to drive down to Florida as well. I had a, a Gary Johnson van that I was going to take down there as a, a volunteer. And it was a Friday afternoon. We got served with summons to appear at the Secretary of State's office on Monday morning to uh, defend a ballot access challenge brought to us, brought by Republicans in that state. We could not find on a Friday night a libertarian ballot access lawyer in Des Moines for Monday morning. I mean, it's hard to find libertarian lawyers anyway. So I turned around (laughs) and I drove from St. Louis up to Des Moines. I'd never done any ballot access work. And during that time, I started calling press and trying to get some local Iowa press with the Associated Press and with uh, NPR to cover these hearings. And then I crammed Iowa election law into my head and I showed up Monday morning ready to go. When I got there, the Republicans had flown in a couple of election law attorneys from D.C. And these were, you know, big wig election law attorneys, really expensive suits. They walked in very full of of confidence. And uh, I stand up and stick out my hand to shake their hands and say, hey, I'm counsel for Governor Johnson. And they refused to shake my hand. They literally looked me up and down and went, huh. (laughs) And I was like, well, uh, you've just underestimated me, but that's fine. <laughs> that's unbelievable. That's just such a show of disrespect. I mean, just even if you're, you know, opponents in legally or politically, I mean, that's just that's on a whole other yeah. level. <laughs> and what I had waiting for them in the hearing room when they which they discovered a few minutes later is I had radio. I had reporters all sitting there. I had my argument ready and we were able to successfully judge both the legal and political climate in Iowa to lean on the secretary of state to maintain Governor Johnson on the ballot. So he did, and that got appealed all the way up to the Iowa Supreme Court over a period of a couple of weeks. But, you know, we held firm the whole way. At the end of the day, was in 2012, was Governor Johnson on all 50 ballots? No, he didn't make it onto the ballot in Oklahoma and in Michigan. Those were the two 
Oklahoma is just very difficult with the signature requirements. Uh, I'm happy to report that we are, as libertarians, are on Oklahoma already for 2016. It's the first time, I think, in like 20 years. And in Michigan, there was a successful challenge. Uh, unfortunately, I didn't get to handle that one. I don't know that it would have been a different result had I been there, but... I did file a petition with the, uh, the Eighth Circuit, I believe, and with the Supreme Court to try to get that heard, but uh, to no avail. So we're looking at maybe 49 this year and maybe a possible 50. Is there any hope in Michigan, I guess? Oh, no, Michigan, we should probably get on this year. I don't think that we'll have difficulty there this okay, time. Great. That was just yeah. the challenge for last time. Right, exactly. We have a couple of states that are going to be difficult. Pennsylvania is typically difficult. I'm sure we did had extensive litigation in 2012 in Pennsylvania. I think we'll probably see that again. If we've got an army of uh, good volunteers out there gathering signatures, the more signatures we can get, the better our chances are of surviving a, a ballot access challenge. All right, Alicia, so you spent all this time working for Governor Johnson, not just to support his campaign, but really to support the uh, the legitimacy, the legal legitimacy of the Libertarian Party. And uh, so now you've come to this point here in 2016, four years later, where you're going to actually be a candidate yourself, or you're, you're at least putting yourself forward as one. So I'm really right. curious because I've interviewed several of the uh, the presidential nominees, uh, John McAfee, Austin Peterson, uh, Dr. Mark Allen Feldman. Daryl Perry. And, uh, you know, everybody seems to um, make a big deal about running for president to push a message and that kind of thing. But you're the first person I've spoken to who specifically has declared. Well, that's not true. I, I have spoken to Judd Weiss as well. But um, you've actually declared specifically for the vice presidential nomination. So right. why are you going specifically for the vice presidential nomination here? Well, for a couple of reasons. First of all, we have a very good field of candidates for the presidential nomination. And I don't add anything to that. I think uh, what I do is I can balance the ticket and I can be a great spokesperson for Liberty as the vice presidential candidate. And so I really looked at the VP position because I felt like that's where my talents and my passion for Liberty would best be expressed. All right. So how does this process work? in the Libertarian Party with the vice presidential candidate, because I know, you know, the delegates will choose their presidential nominee and, and some candidates will sort of declare their preference for a running mate. But the vice presidency, that is the same process, is it not, with the delegates selecting you and you could be, you know, elected as vice president, you know, not necessarily attached to a particular nominee. Is that correct? That's exactly right. So the Libertarians uh, do it the old fashioned way, which is the vice president is separately nominated. And what's really cool about that is that the delegation really gets to choose the ticket that they feel best represents libertarian values. I know that there's been some talk about changing that this year so that the presidential nominee can declare a running mate. And that works better with the FEC laws, to be honest. So one of the problems that I have as a vice presidential candidate is that I have to comply with the FEC and the FEC does not have a category for running as vice president. They only have it as running for president. So I have to declare as though I'm running for president. Interesting. They're <laughs> yeah. like, hey, we never even thought of this. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, the, all the laws are set up really for how the two major parties do things and they don't really care how it it impacts the uh, other parties. So is there a particular candidate, you know, that you'd like to be attached to? Obviously, you already worked for Governor Johnson. I'm sure you have, you have good thoughts about him. So are you specifically trying to run with Governor Johnson or are you pretty much are you open to running with any of these candidates? I'm open to running. I am independent. As I said, I think that this is one of the cool things about the Libertarian Party is that we can pick somebody that we think uh, best represents libertarianism. And we have a great slate of candidates uh, up for the nomination for president. So I'd be happy to run with any of them. I do have a lot of respect for Governor Johnson and would be thrilled to be his running mate this year. 
So in your view, what should be the primary role of a running mate to the uh, Libertarian Party's presidential candidate? What's your job out there? Is it to, to hype people up to push the candidate to push your own message or to just kind of generally build this liberty movement? I think it's a combination of building the liberty movement and being a great spokesperson for liberty, as well as supporting the candidate as a surrogate. You know, traditionally, you're going to see the vice presidents running around doing fundraising and supporting the candidate uh, and talking up the candidate. And certainly there will be some of that. And that's how the media is going to expect the vice presidential candidate to behave. But we have a bigger message here. And that message is that liberty and libertarianism is what's right for the country. Right now, we are suffering from economic malaise. That economic malaise is a direct result of overregulation, socialist policies, and uh, inflation that's being caused by quantitative easing, among other things. You know, liberty is the answer to the pain that so many people are feeling economically. I think what we're seeing in this election cycle is a rise of people who are struggling so much financially and economically, and they can put their finger on the problem, which is uh, crony capitalism, government, and corruption in Washington, D.C., but they haven't put their finger on the answer. The answer is an authoritarian leader like Donald Trump. It's not socialism like what uh, Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders have to offer. It's getting government out of the way so the people can live their lives and be fruitful and have lots of opportunities. That's the answer. And so my job, I think, ultimately, and what I'm hoping to do in my campaign is to spread that message as loudly as possible and really convince people that government is what's causing the pain and it's not the answer. Now, one thing that the libertarian candidate is going to have to talk about a lot, whether they're the presidential candidate or the vice president, is uh, the role of government in people's lives. So I want to get into some of the specifics that you've put out there for your campaign. But first, I kind of want to know what your your general idea is about the proper role of government in society. I prefer government to be limited. I think that we need to decentralize government as much as possible. I do feel that the U.S. Constitution has generally laid out the best uh, role for the federal government, which is national self-defense, uh, some adjudication between the states as far as uh, the flow of commerce. You know, it, there's not a lot much else that they should be doing. We have uh, now the federal government is way too involved in, in commerce. The, the Commerce Clause in the Constitution has been stretched beyond recognition, and now it's acting as, uh, well, the nanny state. And th this is a major problem. Now, Alicia, we're going to take a little bit of a closer look at some of the specifics of your campaign positions in just a moment. But first, I need to take a minute out to tell everyone out there about our great sponsors at Health Excellence Select. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I purchased my own health insurance. So personally, I was hit by some serious sticker shock after the implementation of Obamacare. My deductible more than doubled, my premium shot through the roof, and I'm just sitting here thinking, what am I actually getting for this? I'm a healthy guy. I don't go to the doctor. I really hadn't even been to a doctor for any major medical problem in years and years and years. So why would I spend hundreds and hundreds of dollars a month and then have to spend six or $8,000 in deductibles before I even see a dime of coverage for my health care? It just didn't add up. And it doesn't add up. It doesn't add up for most of us. But luckily, there is an alternative out there now. It's an alternative known as health sharing. And health sharing is simply awesome. <laughs> I've gotten paid for every single medical bill I've submitted in full, 100%. This is not a joke. After I spend $500... 
I get everything else back. And our friends at Health Excellence Select have kicked it up a notch. They'll do all the work for you. They will find your doctors. They will set appointments for you. They'll provide you 24-7 access to doctors via Skype so you don't even need to go to a doctor or pay a dime half the time. Health Excellence Select is truly revolutionary and you guys are doing yourselves a disservice if you do not look into this amazing alternative to your standard corporatized Obamacare health insurance. You can learn more by heading over to lionsofliberty.com slash health or if you're ready to sign up, you can directly call my representative Jeff Cantor at 440-283-6849. Tell him Mark from Lions of Liberty sent you. Now, Lisa, one of the things that's really impressive to me is... uh you know, a lot of these presidential candidates have great looking websites and have some general views on there, but you really go deep into the specifics on a lot of these issues out there. And and I think that's important because while we talk about the philosophy a lot, I talk about the philosophy a lot. The biggest questions I always get from people are sort of like on the specifics there. How would libertarians handle this and that? And so, and you really do go into that on your issues page. So I just want to touch on a couple things here and kind of see what your, I guess, libertarian answer, at least maybe at the presidential executive level would be to a lot of these things. And I'll, I'll start with that education. One thing you went into great detail on your website. So what do you think the government's role or perhaps lack of role in education should be? Uh, I do think there should be a much smaller role. Ultimately, I would prefer the government to not have a role in education. I think that education should be handled privately. It should be handled by the parents. Right now, we have the federal government handling way too much money in education. So we're collecting all these taxes for education, and then it's being granted back to the states with a bunch of strings attached on how uh, education is going to be doled out to the population. This leads to inefficiency, and it leads to lack of innovation. And we have a certain amount of indoctrination that's happening in our educational system. And that's talking in the K through 12. I also think that uh, we have a serious problem with university education in this country, the government guaranteeing loans which has created an inflationary bubble in the university system. So the federal government should get out of education. I think that that's one of the first things that we should do to save money and to improve our rankings nationally in our educational offerings. How do you think that libertarians can sell that message that you're talking about there of of really rolling back the government's role in education? How can we sell that to, say, Bernie Sanders supporters? I mean, I know that that Governor Johnson has sort of reached out and said, you know, I'm the closest to Bernie Sanders of, of the third party candidates, of the libertarian candidates, and I can bring in a lot of those people. So, I mean, how do you think we can sort of show them that they are getting scammed and they're recognizing that, that their solutions of free college for everyone really aren't the right ones? Right. It is going to be difficult to get the message across that giving free education out to everybody is not necessarily right. We can't just right. post a meme and, and win them over <laughs> because that, that seems to be the primary method many people use. But. Well, you know, I will tell you that in my industry, there is a lot of complaint about how much law school costs, for example. So I know a lot of people who have gone to law school and are a quarter of a million or more in debt. And the average lawyer, according to the IRS, makes $45,000 a year, believe it or not. And so it's not nearly enough. That to really pay goes for, against the yeah. myth out there that, you know, <laughs> oh, he's a lawyer. He's loaded. I mean, that, that's not necessarily always the case. No, most lawyers are not loaded. The ones that are loaded are at the big firms and they're working so much that they are miserable and horrible people. <laughs> and it really has perverted the whole legal industry and hence the legal system. But that's kind of a, a tangent. But I will say that, uh, you know, when you talk to them about, whether they should have gone to law school in the first place. If they had not been offered all of these loans and had been told about the economic realities of the 
legal industry before they went to law school, would they have made that same choice? And many of them say, no, I wouldn't have. I would have done something different. That's the type of education you can only get in a free market system. And so what by education, I mean information prior to deciding to go to school. Instead, we've got this push of as long as you've got free money, get more and more education. And that is creating a, sort of an inflation in degrees. So it used to be that you could get a job if you had a high school diploma. Now it's hard to get a job if you don't have a college diploma. And we're just inflating the amount of information that people have to learn and the amount of years that they have to go through this bureaucracy before they can get jobs. It would be a lot better to accept people's uh, natural aptitudes and inclinations instead of forcing them all through liberal arts uh, type curriculum, but to actually say, okay, do you want job training? Do you want to learn technical things? There's nothing wrong with that. And if we're a society that's egalitarian, then we should recognize that not everybody needs to get a PhD in philosophy. We, we could probably use more people actually thinking deeply about philosophy, but I'm not sure the college <laughs> system is really the place they need to be doing that based on a lot of the results we've seen. <laughs> a PhD in philosophy, though, doesn't you know build us computers and build us cars no, and help us become a, a, an economy that is competitive in this world. You're talking about all of the people that we have to bring in on tech visas. It's because we're not graduating enough people with tech backgrounds. Well, this kind of plays into the next issue that you go into a lot of detail on. And obviously, it's all tied in, like we said, because the reason people are upset about college isn't just because of the cost. That is part of the cost. But it's that they were sold on the idea. And then they get into all this debt. Then they get into the real world. And now they're finding, you know, uh, the rate we're going, like you talked about, we're eventually going to need require master's degrees just to be considered for, say, a janitorial position. So what would you say would be the answers to people that are, are struggling in the economy, that are having difficulty getting jobs or that have been unemployed for extended amounts of time. How would you address that? You know, I have a different answer for millennials versus people who are older going into the workforce. Okay. Cause technically I'm in like the last year of being a millennial or something <laughs> like that. I think, I think I'm right on the edge, even though I don't like to call myself one. Right. I'm, I'm not quite millennial. I'm just a couple years older myself, but I'm an employer. And I will tell you that what matters to me as an employer is being able to bring people in with good work ethics, who are smart, who can learn the job, and who have practical skills. Practical skills include, obviously, the job skills themselves. So if it's a lawyer, they have to be a lawyer. If they are an accountant, they have to be an accountant. But it also means computer skills, and it means people skills, sales skills, uh, writing skills, things like that. If you want to focus on being able to get a job, you need to focus on being profitable to the employer. The squeeze is on for small business employers who create more than half our jobs in this country. They are being squeezed constantly with regulations. The economy's down. Sales are down. And so they have to get more money out of the labor that they hire. So if you're looking for a job, you need to make yourself valuable. And having a bunch of degrees isn't going to impress employers who just need to make money so they can keep their lights on and make their payrolls. So my answer for millennials would be, you know, really think twice about that degree, get the basics degrees that you need to get for the job that you're going after and make yourself valuable with practical skills. My answer for older people is to keep trying and again, to learn tech skills. I think uh, I enjoy mature employees as a, a business owner. I find that a lot of younger employees, and I think a lot of people of my generation older will say this, there is an attitude that we don't always appreciate. <laughs> 
the work ethic is not as strong as it used to be, or at least it appears that way. And so I've had plenty of good millennial employees come in. But if you're coming in with sort of this entitled attitude of, I went to college and now I'm owed a top level position, when you don't have the experience to really back that up, you're just not going to be treated seriously. And so, you know, I can see being bitter that you go to school thinking like, oh, I've got this degree in business or this degree in whatever you have a degree in and thinking, okay, now I know everything there is to know because I've learned it in a book and I've worked really hard to get through the school and I've invested six figures into my education. Now the reward comes with a job. But you have to remember that small business owners, they didn't enter into that bargain with you. (laughs) They're here to make money and they're here to serve their communities and their clients and their customers. They didn't call anybody up four years ago and say, hey, go get this degree. Uh, As soon as you get out, we'll give you this job. We'll totally pay off your debt. Don't even worry about it. (laughs) Exactly. So, you know, that's just a practice. That's not even necessarily a libertarian answer. That's just a practical answer as a business owner. I'm, I'm telling you, we are just getting hammered. And you can't expect to show up and say, hey, I want high wages. I want all these benefits. Oh, by the way, now you have to pay for all of my life choices, be it um, you know leaves or helping me with my student loans or, or whatever. And I come here to you with nothing but a piece of paper and no practical experience. And th- you have to look at it from the employer's perspective on what is the benefit that they're getting out of that. And one more issue I want to discuss with you, because it it can be a really tricky one for libertarians and for people that just advocate getting the government out of a lot of areas, because one thing that's hard for people to wrap their heads around is, is how, you know, private companies, private industries can be regulated when it comes to their dealings with the environment. You know, a lot of people will say, oh, Mm -hmm. well, companies will just pollute everywhere if we don't have the EPA, if we don't have these government agencies regulating things. So what would be your answer to people that have strong concerns about the environment, even people that might generally think free markets are great, but see this one area where we just can't see any other way to deal with it other than the government intervening? Well, I'm going to give you kind of a nerdy answer to that question. Well, we're liberty nerds on the show, so you're going to fit right in here. Well, good. You know, I took a lot of economics classes in college. I really like economics as a discipline because I think it explains a lot of human behavior. One of the things that you learn in economics is a concept called externalities. And externalities is when people can foist their costs on to the public at large. We do know it exists. We know that companies will pollute because they don't have to pay for the cleanup. And so in that regard, the government has a legitimate role as an arbiter for all of the the rest of the community to enforce environmental regulations and enforce people to clean up. We can also do that through a um, a tort system. You know, your neighbors can sue you if you pollute on their land, things like that. Uh, so I do think that there is a legitimate role in the government to help with the environment. And in fact, it is written into the Constitution. The Constitution specifically gives the federal government the right to deal with waterways and airways and things like that. Uh, The EPA has gone way above and beyond that. I do think that they are acting outside the scope of the authority that they should be given uh, as a regulatory body under the executive branch. They're being allowed to craft laws without congressional oversight. And that's a problem. And so I would definitely rein that in. But it doesn't mean that we should necessarily throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to environmental regulations, because we do have the problem of externalities. It is an economic phenomenon that we recognize occurs. 
All right, now we can have all our ideas about how libertarians would, should, and could deal with a lot of these issues. At the end of the day, though, they're not going to matter if we can't actually be in a position to implement them. And I think that really is the most important thing to do in in terms of building a political party, building a political movement is is getting more people to listen to you. That's why I do this podcast. And that's why I think a lot of people run for office to get that message out there. So what do you think is the, I guess, the, the primary method that yourself and others in the Libertarian Party through the presidential campaign, whether it's you as the vice presidential candidate, whether it's somebody else, what's the best way we can really grow this party, grow this movement and uh, be taken seriously as a political alternative for people? There are several methods that we should use. So first of all, you know, we as Liberty nerds can talk about a lot of these concepts on a a deep and abstract level, but I don't think that that's necessarily the messaging that we need for people who are new to ideas of liberty. If you say to somebody, taxation is theft, which is something that's obvious to me, they are going to look at you, if they've never thought of that before, they're going to look at you like you grew a second head. (laughs) What do you mean taxation is theft? I've grown up my whole life paying taxes to the point that it's so it's just second nature. I've never. I think that's the same it. look I get from my yeah. girlfriend whenever I talk about this stuff. But we know right. <laughs> so I think that we got to work on crafting our message um, in bites that people can understand. You know, so you might not necessarily say taxation is theft. I do say it, but it might not be the message for the mainstream. So you might say something along the lines of, "Well, every time you tax a small business like their Walmart, you're putting that small business um, and you know." John Doe Plummer and the three people that he hires, you're putting him out of business because he can't afford that. And that impacts your local community. And we don't like that. So why should the government take that money away from John and Bob and Sue when the government hasn't earned it and they're not going to do anything with it that we appreciate? So it's the same concept, but we can kind of give them a little story. So we uh, need to talk to people yeah. like they're people. <laughs> right. Not like they're just memes that we're battling back and forth right. against. Right. The abstractions are not a good way to explain libertarian concepts to people who have not spent any time thinking about them before. So I would say, first of all, let's, you know, let's work on talking about these concepts in concrete everyday terms that people will see impact their lives. Governor Johnson says a lot of people are libertarian and don't know it. I agree with that to a large degree. So when I talk to people a lot, I will say, let's talk about our common ground. So let's, instead of saying, you know, I'm a team Republican or I'm team Democrat or I'm team Libertarian, let's talk about the things that we all agree on. And we all agree that there's a problem with the police and our inner city uh, interactions with our black communities. We know that there's a problem there. We're seeing it on TV. Okay, so we can agree with that. And then let's just take baby steps talking about how that impacts our local community. You know, I live in St. Louis in a predominantly black neighborhood and I've talked with my neighbors about these issues. And, you know, what they say to me is they're really upset at the rioting. They don't like the rioting. They think it's a shame that the neighborhoods are being destroyed, that there's property destruction. They don't think that it's good for the image. At the same time, they're really upset that so many people that they love and know are going to jail and they have a perceived uh, harassment by the police. So we can talk about those things and say, all right, that's a problem. And my humanity allows me to accept how you would feel about that. And so let's talk about, you know, the police officers and their people too, and what they're afraid of. And we can start talking about how liberty is a re- answer to stopping this sort of spiraling problem without picking a team or saying, you know, incendiary things like you're racist. 
So it's, it's how we deliver the message. As far as tactics go, I mean, I do think new media is great. Social media is great, but... I heard some people are doing this podcasting thing too. That yeah, might, might podcasting's good. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there is nothing that can replace grassroots. Talking to your neighbors, talking to your friends, and planting those little seeds. Because, you know, as libertarians, we think everybody thinks libertarian because we spend all of our time in Facebook groups that are libertarian ideas. And I hate to tell it to you, but the Democrats, Republicans, and everybody else are doing the same thing. And we're not cross-germinating. Hold on. on those guys have Facebook groups too? <laughs> yeah, I know. I we shocking. have the, the monopoly on that. Right. Um, <laughs> it's shocking, right? So I really think we just have to have that grassroots. And it's not necessarily sexy. It's not necessarily fast. I do think it's important for us to keep hammering the mainstream media, having a good, credible candidate for Positions like president is important because that gives us some of that credibility in the mainstream media. If we can get in with the, the debates, I think that will be huge because that message gets broadcasted to millions of Americans. But we have to all do our part in talking to our neighbors. You know, the same way that the Bernie Sanders people are all making us crazy because they won't shut up about him. Like we should do the same thing about liberty. All right. Well, Alicia Dern, thank you so much for coming on the show and spreading some seeds of your own here uh, about the ideas of liberty and about your campaign as well. Before I let you go, why don't you just do a quick little run through of how people can get in touch with you, help and volunteer for your campaign if they've been inspired by what you've heard here today. Thank you. Please visit my website. It's Dern2016.com. And Dern is spelled D-E-A-R-N. 2016.com. There you can learn about me, the issues that we are promoting, and you can also uh, volunteer. We have uh, a great group of volunteers already, and you can donate. Please donate to our campaign. We've got uh, some great videos that we're producing that are aimed at explaining libertarianism to a mass audience. The production quality is really high. I have a great creative team, but we can't get those videos done without donations. So please donate at Dern2016.com. All right, Alicia Dern, keep up the great work. Best of luck and keep on roaring. Thank you. Thanks. All right, folks, I hope you enjoyed my discussion today with Miss Alicia Dern, a candidate for the vice presidential nomination for the Libertarian Party. Be sure to go ahead and check her out. Like I said, she's got a very detailed campaign page. She certainly put a lot of time and effort into considering her vice presidential campaign. And like I said, we've talked to many, many of the candidates for the presidential nomination for the Libertarian Party in the past few months. John McAfee, Daryl Perry, Austin Peterson, Dr. Mark Allen Feldman. We also had a very recent debate bringing on different advocates for some of the various nominees for the Libertarian nomination for president. I've really tried to help make this program a vehicle for people to not only discuss the ideas of liberty, but to help make some of their political decisions within the Libertarian Party. And this can be tough sometimes because as I've discussed, I try to make this show accessible to people. I try to make this something that you can send to anybody, send to a friend of yours who might not be familiar with the ideas of liberty. And I think within these conversations that we have, uh, even when we are talking sort of inside baseball about Libertarian Party politics, it really does present us an opportunity to not only allow candidates to discuss themselves and, and discuss 
the merits of the other candidates, but also allows us a platform to sort of present our ideas and present the ideas of liberty out there to people in hopefully a simple way. Because when you run a political campaign, you do have to find ways to communicate things in a very simple way. And I think that's something libertarians really need to focus on because, and I don't mean to say we need to forget the actual message and focus on flashiness and sales and marketing, because I think the message, the actual message is actually the most important thing. Uh, Figuring out what that message is uh, doing a sort of deep dive into the philosophy behind the ideas of liberty. That's the most important thing we can do. And Miss Stern made a comment during the interview where she kind of said, well, you know, you can't build roads, you can't build society with a degree in philosophy. And I would probably agree with that, considering the current state of our educational system and, and the sort of philosophy that's likely being touted in a lot of our universities. But at the same time, I mean, I think it's something important is, is to not brush philosophy aside because really everything we do is based on philosophy. If you're following the scientific method, if you're an engineer, I mean, where did that scientific method method come from. The fact that you knew to follow logic and reason to create that scientific method, well, that is philosophy. Really, any of these sciences are a subset of philosophy. And politics as well is a subset of philosophy. It's really a way to communicate and translate a political philosophy into the modern political arena. And there are many people that might have similar ideas about the ideas of liberty, about how a world should be, and they might have different ideas about how to communicate those ideas, and exactly how you can change our current policies to bring us closer to that grand vision. And it really is quite a balancing act, but I think one thing we need to do is to first focus on a coherent philosophy, because if we don't have a coherent philosophy, if we don't have principles that we can all generally agree on, it's going to be very tough to craft a political message. Again, that's why I've brought so many of these people running for political office and trying to get involved in advancing the ideas of liberty through the Libertarian Party onto this show, because I believe that is an important part of this conversation, and I hope to help influence that, help influence this dialogue, help keep advancing the ideas of liberty, which is, of course, our mission here at Lions of Liberty. If you enjoy this mission, enjoy the pursuit of this mission, we ask that you help us out, and there are many ways you can do that. The number one way you can help us is, of course, to promote the show to your friends, to your social network, to your circles of influence, whether that means tweeting it out, Facebooking it out, emailing it to your friends and family. Any ways you can do that would be a big help to us. You can, of course, follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Lions of Liberty. Also on Twitter at Lions of Liberty. If you want to join the conversation with us, talk to myself, other Lions of Liberty contributors, past guests on the program, you can come and join the Lions of Liberty forum. That is our private group on Facebook. Costs absolutely nothing for you to join. Just ask yourself for approval. I'll check you out. If you don't look like a crazy, scary spam bot, I'll let you write in to join this conversation about the ideas of liberty. And again, if you're a fan of this show, please do subscribe on iTunes. Tunes, subscribe on Stitcher Radio and leave us a five-star rating and a great review on those platforms. These are easy, easy ways you can help support our program. Uh, coming this Wednesday, I'm going to be having another guest on who's also looking to advance the ideas of liberty and to do through so through the vehicle of the Libertarian Party. He is one of several candidates looking to become the national chairman for the Libertarian Party. Mr. Charles Perallo will be joining me this coming Wednesday on episode 211. Until then, folks, I've only got one task for you, and that is live long and live free.